So we're doing a series this summer called Miracles. You say, why are you doing a series all summer long? That's, isn't that like forever? And hopefully it doesn't feel like it's been forever because we're really trying to just encourage our faith. It's been a fun, at least for me, it's been a fun series to share with you. And, and hopefully my goal is really two things. It just elevates your expectation to see the power of God working in your life. That our faith should be more than just a great theory, but we should really experience God moving and, and, and causing his favor to shine on us and just see God working in our lives. And then the other, the other kind of sub sort of goal in this is just to raise this spiritual hunger to, to know God and know his word more, to spend more time in his word. And, and so uh, it's always good it's, to, to come to church and to have messages from the scriptures because that is our, our foundation for life. But really, it's, it's, I'd love to, be, have to encourage you to read your Bibles more often, to at home, to spend, carve out a little moment of time in your day, whether it's the morning, at noon, at night, whatever works for you, just a little bit of time to read the scriptures. And of course, uh, our, our focus on this series has been the Gospel of John, which is, uh, theologians tell us it's the uh, clearly, clearest written of all the Gospels. In other words, it's the easiest to understand, and it tells some unique stories about Jesus. In fact, uh, uh, John talks a lot about miracles in the life of Jesus, and so we're going to look at those here in just, just a minute. But what is a, what is a miracle? Well, one of my favorite the- theological definitions is this. It says, a miracle is an event brought about by the power of God. In other words, it's not just happenstance, not just a coincidence, but literally the releasing of the power of God that is a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose for the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. In other words, there's a a moment in time where God did something that caused our ordinary to become extraordinary. He did something different, and it's, and it's, it's obvious. And so this idea that our primary focus, like I say, this summer has been looking at the Gospel of John because, well, let me, let me just let John tell us why we're looking at this. In John 20, verse 30, it says this, and truly Jesus did many other signs. Now, signs point to something or to someone. They point to something. He did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. In other words, what John writes about is that Jesus did a lot of miracles, a lot of signs that pointed to himself for who he was in front of witnesses, in front of the disciples. He says, which are not written in this book, but these, the ones that he's written, I've written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And let me just sort of define what all, of, what all that means. John's writing here and saying to us that of all the things I could have written about, I've, I've chosen, in fact, we've, we now know that I've chosen seven miracles to write about specifically that happened in the ministry of Jesus, even though there are many, many more of, the, of them. But these seven help us to put our focus on the miracle maker, not on the miracle itself, but what we can learn from the miracle that points us to the one who brought the miracle. And that in believing in him, not just having a belief in miracles, but a belief in Jesus. Believing in Jesus, you might have life, zoe, the the God kind of life, the zoe kind of life, how? In his name. In other words, what he's trying to help us see is that there's life uh, apart from God, that would be you know a, a life away from Him or a life with Him, and I, I like to think it this way: that uh, there are 
people, you, you, you know them, you're not them, okay? You're not them. But you know people who have prayed what we would call the sinner's prayer. But you wouldn't say they're, they have a life that's being lived in his name. Right? You understand what I'm saying? They're not bad people. They just, Jesus might be their savior because, remember the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. So they, they, he might be their savior, but by their actions in life, he's not their Lord. So when he talks about these miracles as, as pointing to Jesus and that we would have in believing, in our believing in him, in our believing, we would have life in his name. He's talking about a different life than a life apart from God or a life where Jesus is just sort of savior. He's my insurance policy. Or there's this life in his name. That's the kind of life I hope we all live. I, I hope that's why you're here today, because you're endeavoring to have that kind of life, a life in his name. That's a life that's built around him, that's solid on that relationship that you have with him, tapping into his mercy, his grace, all those things. It's all about Jesus. Tim Keller says, talking about miracles, says this. He said, Christ's miracles were not the suspension of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. I want you to get there for a second. In other words, some people think that when Jesus moves on the earth, when a miracle happens, it's because God is changing the natural order. What, what he's saying is, no, it's a restoration of what should be. But when sin came on the earth in the Garden of Eden, it's, it's messed everything up. So Jesus, when he does a miracle, when he supersedes the natural order, it's because he's the creator. He has the ability to supersede the natural order, to bring it back into order. Let me keep reading. They were a reminder of what once was prior to the fall and a preview of what will eventually be a universal reality once again. A world of peace and justice without death, disease, or conflict. Beth and I were talking the other day about life and, and death and heaven and our relationship with God. And, I, and I'm reminded we don't hardly talk enough about after Jesus returns, the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand years here on the earth. What life's going to be like when that happens? I don't know about you, but that's exciting. A thousand years. What are we going to do for a thousand years with no death? A thousand years with life like we've never experienced before. Life in his name. That's the side thought, but let me get back to the message. The miracles of Jesus. So we've been looking at these miracles throughout this, throughout this summer. And in fact, if you've missed us, been on vacation or whatever, we took a little break. I called an audible in the, in the series and we took a two-week break, and we looked back into the Old Testament at a miracle of Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal. It was really the sort of the foundation for this whole series was this, that particular story just prompted, stirred my heart to, to even share what I'm sharing with you today. So we took a little pause. And so now we're back into the, into the Gospel of John this morning. The first miracle we looked at was in John chapter 2. It was where Jesus turned water into wine. Some of the keys of that message was this idea, this concept that Mary told, the, told the, uh, the servants. She said, whatever he says to do, do it. A good reminder of us that, that God's word 
is the final authority. And to build our life, this life of faith, we do what God tells us to do. We don't argue with it. We don't try to mold it and shape it to fit our culture. We live by it. Somebody say amen to that. And so we learned about the new birth and the infilling of the Spirit. Then this, the, the next miracle is the healing of the nobleman's son. I love that story because in that one, we learned about the power of God and how the power of God has no limits. He was 20 miles away, and, and the nobleman came to Jesus because his son was, was sick with a fever and was about to die. And, and Jesus spoke healing over his son, never touched him, never went down there, but from that distance away, just prayed for them. We learned about the importance of faith, about trusting in the Lord. Third miracle was the man who was healed at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. And that was a story of a paralyzed man who had been paralyzed 38 years. We learned that, you know, that change can come. The miracles can come no matter how long you've lived a certain way, a certain lifestyle. We learned about the power of God's amazing grace. Then we spoke about the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. And we learned that God can multiply whatever we're willing to put into his hands. You know, we can keep things ourselves, but there's something about releasing what we have, putting it into God's hands and seeing what God can do with what we give him. And so today, we're going to pick up the story right, right after that miracle in John chapter 6 because another miracle is about to happen. And it's an amazing miracle that, that has a lot of ins and outs, a lot of things about the story that I, I believe will really bless your life. It's in John chapter 6 and verse 15. If you brought a Bible with you, go ahead and turn it on, open it up, or whatever you do. John chapter 6 and verse 15. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. So Jesus had fed these 5,000 men, the Bible says, and really in, in, in the terms of how they, uh, they used back then, that signified families. So there was probably 15,000, 20,000 people that he fed with five loaves and two fishes. And there were, as you remember, there was 12 baskets full after the the miracle of the multiplication of that food. And, and, uh, and so the people were extremely excited. And they wanted to make Jesus their king. Verse 15 says this, When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Now remember that phrase, into the hills by himself. That evening, verse 16, that evening Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed across the lake toward Capernaum. Toward Capernaum. Could you put that picture up there for me? Uh, There we are. There we are. At the top of the picture, at the 12 o'clock, it says the feeding of the 5,000 park. That that up there is where where this miracle had happened. And it says the disciples got in a boat and they headed toward Capernaum. Well, actually, they were heading toward Bethsaida, which is down further south along the coastline. Uh, Bethsaida. See, there was actually two Bethsaidas. Sometimes when we read scripture, we, we it, it can sound confusing because in in one here we read they, they headed towards Capernaum, but in another gospel we're going to read that it, they were headed toward Bethsaida. Well, how can they? How can they, they? And they're in Bethsaida. That's the region of Bethsaida where they're starting from. So if Jesus said get in the boat and go to Bethsaida, and they're in Bethsaida, that doesn't make any sense. How do you go there when you're already there? But there's two of them. So there's at the top to the about 11 o'clock position, Bethsaida, Julius. That's that whole region right there where the miracle happened. So they're heading down 
toward Capernaum, but they're actually heading to Bethsaida. So they're, they're in a boat. They're heading down to Bethsaida. That's actually the hometown of Peter, James, and John. They, Bethsaida means a, a fishing village. It's what it literally means, fishing village. So they're heading down to the fishing village on water. But is that the whole story? Well, before we talk about it, let's talk about the boat they're in. This is an interesting, interesting picture. This boat, they actually found a boat like this on, in the mud preserved after 2,000 years of the actual kind of boat that was used. They, and it's on display. When we go to Israel, when we take Israel trips, one of the things we do in, when we're at this uh, Sea of Galilee is we stop at the museum where this, where, where this boat is they found. It's super interesting. But this boat was found in 1986 by a couple of fishermen. They, the water had, a, a drought had come for a number of years, and the water had receded, and they found this boat in the water, and they, they took the real care to dig around it and actually get, got it out of there. But it's, uh, notice it says capacity of 15, a crew of five, uh, and it's about 26 feet long, about just a little bit bigger than our pontoon boat. So, but that would be a fishing boat, so it can go under sail, it could go by, by, by oars, and that's the kind of boat that the disciples would have got, gotten into. So there's 12 disciples plus Jesus, there's plenty of room for the, for the crew to go into the boat. But before we can go any further in explaining the miracle, you need to know that this also this story also appears in two other Gospels. It appears in Mark and appears in Matthew's Gospel. And because it does, we ultimately get a, a much clearer picture of the meaning behind the miracle. Because, again, there's always a meaning behind the miracle. So hold your place in John, at, at John 6, and go over to Mark 6. Because here's what we're going to find out. We're going to find out that the disciples just didn't go to the shoreline and go, what do you guys want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, let's just, let's, just, let's just sail home. Let's just go home. Let's just head out. And I don't know where Jesus is. You know where he is? I don't know. Let's just, let's just drive. Is that what happened? We're going to find out that's not what happened. In Mark chapter 6, in verse 45, immediately after this, he's talking about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and the people wanting to make Jesus king. And Jesus sends the disciples to the water, and he goes to the mountain. It says, immediately after this, now listen, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake to Bethsaida while he sent the people home. Now, that's a whole lot different than, than the disciples just deciding to go out in the water. They were given an, a command. They were given the word of God. God spoke to them and said, go to Bethsaida. How many know that's different than just deciding you want to go? It's a difference between being called and, being, and just going. There's a difference. And it wasn't a suggestion. He insisted that they go. So again, I want you to get a picture then of this, where we are in this story. The disciples are in a boat on the water. Jesus is up on a hill on the land. And it says in, in the gospel, we won't read it this morning, but, but in this gospel of Mark, it says that around the middle of the night, Jesus was in the mountain. It says he saw them struggling. I've read some commentators that says that as they were out in the boat, that the storm came and that Jesus up in the mountain, he, he saw them. And so because he saw them, he responded. I don't b- believe that's possible, my p- personal belief, that he didn't see them with his natural eye because they were three or four miles out into the water and it was a stormy night. And he's on the mountain. 
So how did he see him? Well, you ever been praying and see something? You ever been praying and you just see something? Well, sure, we all have. We've all experienced where God will show us something. He shows us things to come, John 16. But one of the things the Holy Spirit does within us when we pray is he shows us stuff. So Jesus is in the mountain, and he sees that his disciples in his heart are in trouble. And so he responds, and we're going to see what, what happens with that. Soon again, let's go back to John 6, verse 18. John 6 and 18. Soon a gale swept down upon them. Remember, the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. The mountains around there are up about 1,500 feet. So again, as the storm comes over the mountains, we're talking about a 2,000, 2,200 foot drop. It's just a lot of turbulence can happen. A storm can happen on the water and churn that water up very, very quickly. And soon a gale swept down upon them, and the sea grew very rough. They had rowed three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the boat. They were terrified. But he called out to them and said, Do not be afraid. I am here. Now, if you've got a written Bible, you can make a note or highlight it in your, in your electronic Bible. Highlight the word, I am. Why is that significant? Well, again, remember the story of Moses at the burning bush. And God speaks to Moses and says, go back and free my people. And he said, well, God, who am I to tell them sent me? And God said, tell them I am sent you. When Jesus uses this phrase, I am, he's signifying his divinity. He's letting them know, reminding them of who he is. Remember, the miracles point to the miracle maker. Then they were eager to let him in the boat, and immediately they arrived at their destination. Well, it just seems like I don't see the whole story here. How about we hold our place in John again and go back to Matthew this time in verse, uh, chapter 14 and verse 26. Here's an interesting observation of the same story. When the disciples saw him, Jesus, walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once and said, don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. A couple of observations. First of all, when they, they, they saw something, their immediate reaction was not Jesus, but they thought it was a ghost. Why is that? Well, I, I found out in my own life, when I allow fear to grip my heart and put on the glasses of fear, it's hard to see God when you're afraid. You need to take off the glasses of fear, put on the glasses of faith. You can see God clearly when you keep your eyes on him. Another observation. They're on the water, they're rowing, and they're in a storm. You have to ask the question, how did I get here? It's safe to say all of us have been in storms. And some storms that are our doing. In other words, we can, we can cause our own storm. We can do, anybody ever, you don't have to raise your hand, anybody done something dumb? It, just, it was just dumb. And, and you, and you, and you, you kind of got messed up because you did something dumb. 
And, and sometimes it's nothing big as a result. Sometimes there's a big, a big result from the acts that you decided to do. It, it caused repercussions. Other storms you face are none, nothing of your own. It's just an attack. Other storms are just storms. They're, they're storms because we live in a fallen world and bad things happen to good people. But anytime you go into a storm, the first question you should ask, how did I get here? That's why I wanted to make sure I pointed out to you that the disciples just weren't out in the water because they decided to go out there. They were out on the water because Jesus insisted that this is what I want you to do. Therefore, they could be in faith. I'm here because God directed me to be here. Does that, does, that make, does that make sense? Because if you're unclear of if I'm doing something or I'm somewhere that I got on my own, then maybe you need to turn around and head back to the port of where you knew the last thing God told you to do. If you find yourself in a mess, you have to ask yourself, am I doing what God's called us to do? No, I can tell you, almost 30 years of pastoring, there have been a lot of situations where we've had difficulties, but we had to ask ourselves, did God call us? Are we doing what we're supposed to do? Are we doing what we're supposed to do? But the first thing we did when we came to Kalamazoo, it was 30 years ago, came to Kalamazoo, and we started what we thought was going to be the church, and it did not go into all the details of the story, but we started what we thought was going to be a church, lasted about two months, and then we, we, we stopped it. We thought, we missed it. We know God, and this is like God's in this. So where was the last place God told us to go? And so we tried to go back to Tulsa because that's where we knew God. That's where we, God had called us, and apparently we missed it by coming to Michigan because God apparently had not called us to start a church, obviously. Apparently he did. That's why they had enough spiritual discernment when we said we're going to come back to Tulsa for them to say, no, don't come back. There's more in you. Just figure it out. Stay there. And that was good advice. I didn't like to hear it, but it was good advice because we're here today because of that advice. So does that, am I making sense? So you have to ask yourself the question, am, am, I, am I here because God's called me to do? <clears throat> Final observation on that. There are some storms in life that we just can't row ourselves out of without Jesus getting in our boat. We just got to ask him for help. All right, so, so let's keep reading. They're in Mark or in Matthew 14. Look at verse 28. Then Peter called to him and said, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, said Jesus. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Now, I find it really interesting because what I love about Scripture is, you know, a lot of people who are anti-Bible will say, well, it's just written by men. Well, of course it's written by men. They're written by men as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. But they're, but they're still men. So the reason that I know that, that John wrote the Gospel of John is, uh, is that story when he talks about on the resurrection morning when he and Peter ran to the tomb. Remember that story? He ran to the tomb uh, to see if the, the tomb was empty. And John writes in his gospel that he got there before Peter. <laughs> Only a guy writes that. 
like girls, right? If the girls would have written that, they, they, somewhere would have been, and we stopped for coffee, <laughs> had a great talk, shared life. Who cares who got there first? Well, guys do. We care. So, so, so I, I say all that to say this, this particular story of Peter walking on water, kind of significant, don't you think? Not mentioned in John, not mentioned in Mark. Neither one of them mentions that they were all there. Jesus walked up on the water and Peter got out of the boat, which means the other 11 stayed in the boat. So Peter gets off the boat, steps off, and walks on water. What lesson do we learn? Well, the life of faith is, uh, is taking a step. He took a step, and, and by the term here, it says he walked on, on water. But I don't believe he walked on water. I believe he walked on the word. He walked on one word from Jesus, come. He stepped on that word, and he, he stepped on that word again. He stepped on that word again, walking toward Jesus. But then he got his eyes off of Jesus. And what happened? He began to sink. I always get a kick out of that. You've probably heard me say it before. I don't know about you. I've never begun to sink. <laughs> Who knows what the water looked like? It might have been like jello. Who knows? But Jesus reached out to him and grabbed him. Verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out, grabbed him, and said, You have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? And they climbed back into the boat, and the wind stopped. Well, first of all, I, I like the concept that walking on water, according to Jesus, is little faith. That ought to stir you up a little bit. So here's two things you might have missed in this story, which is why I like, the, I, well, I like seeing this from the different sides. Because <clears throat> he says, when they climbed back in the boat, the wind stopped. The wind stopped. So they're in the midst of the sea. They'd, they'd, they'd left port. They'd been out for hours. It's the middle of the night. They rowed and rowed and rowed, got no further. They're stuck. Jesus walks out there. They invite him into the boat, and the wind stopped. See, that's the kind of life that God wants us to live. It's this kind of life that is such a trusting life and such a peaceful life that everything around you can be blowing. But it's like there's a, a cone of protection around you where there's peace and calm. That's the life of inviting Jesus into your boat. The boat represents our lives. So if you're here today and Jesus is not the Lord of your life, let me just encourage you. One of the benefits of that is there still will be storms around you but you don't need to participate in the storm. You can stay at a level of peace, trust, comfort, joy in the midst of any storm. And that's a promise of God. Then here's another thing you may, you may have missed. It's in John chapter 6 and verse 21. It says, they were eager to let him in the boat. And what's that next word? Immediately. Immediately. They arrived at their destination. Everybody say immediately. Wait, wait a minute. They were out in the middle of the, 
of the lake. Jesus got in their boat, and they immediately were at the shore. Talk about super, supersonic transport. Can you imagine? I don't know. It would have blown my hair off, you know. Is that cool or what? I don't, I mean, really, that, that, it says that. It didn't say the wind stopped and they had a leisurely sail in. Because remember, the wind, now they're rowing. They, you know, after another four hours of rowing, they made it to port. No, there's something immediate about allowing Jesus into your life, putting your trust in him, putting your faith in him. Hey, you can get places farther and faster with him than you can on your own. That's the bottom line. Amen. St. Augustine said it this way. He said he came walking on the waves. And so he, Jesus, puts all the swelling storms under his feet. Christians, why be afraid? I tell you, there's something about trusting Jesus. All right, real quickly, we're in closing. Five things to learn about this. Number one, faith keeps our eyes on Jesus. Faith Keeps our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I love the passion translation of this verse. It says, we look away from the natural realm and we fasten our gaze onto Jesus who birthed faith within us and who leads us forward into faith's perfection. Oh, I'm telling you, that's rich. Number two, faith does whatever he says. Faith does whatever he says. Number one, faith keeps our eyes on Jesus. Number two, faith does whatever he says. We're, we obey his word. We follow his instructions. Number three, faith is simple. Just take the step. Just take the step. You'd be amazed at all the things that are possible in your life if you just take a step, if you just take a step and trust God. Number four, faith releases the supernatural. And number five, little faith is better than no faith. Amen. Little faith is better than no faith. 